So novels give us this ability to live vicariously through different characters. And if we choose stories in which a character's whole way of being was to live like Jesus, these these people, whether they were real or not, give us that story. They give us a shape to see our lives in and to then kind of cultivate an imagination in which we look at our own lives and see what does it mean to be holy. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are joined by Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson to talk about how reading good books can renew the imagination and give us models of holiness to emulate. Dr. Wilson gives many book recommendations in the course of the conversation, which you can find in the show notes. And whether you read few or many books, the conversation about holiness was illuminating and is well worth your time. Thanks again for tuning in. Not long ago, a friend asked me about some of my first memories of a book that captured my imagination. I'm not sure what was first, but I do have some significant memories of reading. I can recall a thick, well-worn collection of Grimm's fairy tales that I read over and over. My favorite story was The Boy Who Went Forth to Learn What Fear Was. My parents have pictures of an eight-year-old version of me reading a paperback version of The Pilgrim's Progress, which I would only later realize was an allegory. I was nine when I started doing laps through the Narnia series. Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man would be the first book that both captivated me and devastated me. In college, I discovered Dostoevsky, Tolkien, and George MacDonald. But it recently occurred to me that while I have always loved to read, when it comes to fiction, I have tended either to reread books I've enjoyed or to read more escapist offerings rather than venture out into more serious novels that I haven't yet read. This is because it feels like serious novels require a significant commitment of time, energy, and attention that I'm not always sure that I have. If reading is an exercise in empathy, do I have any left for new characters and new stories? Sometimes it just feels easier to read to escape, or for that matter, not to read at all. There's a fallacy hidden in my reluctance to read serious novels, which Tolkien talks about in a famous essay. Tolkien writes that escape need not be escapist. It makes all the difference in the world whether we are deserting our proper duties or whether we are escaping from distraction to consider the shape of how things really are. Literary escapes can be a flight to reality, not just from it. Perhaps the chance to sit down and spend significant time with new characters is precisely what I need as a tonic for my tendency to be distracted. In her new book, The Scandal of Holiness, Jessica Hooten-Wilson amplifies this argument. It's not just new characters that we need to get to know, she writes. We need literary saints, models to guide us in lives of holiness. There are several things about this argument that are provocative. First, the fascination with saints. What does that mean? 
especially for Protestants who have shied away from the label. Second, the identification of fictional, literary figures as saints. How can someone who has never actually lived be a saint? Third, the very idea of holiness. Can humans really achieve holiness? And how would we know if we achieved it? In any case, the premise provokes us to ask the question of how reading can renew the imagination, how in a time of despair and distraction, it can offer us a vision of faithfulness, one that spurs us toward love and good deeds. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Jessica Hooten-Wilson. So I'm joined now by our featured guest, Jessica Hooten-Wilson. Jessica is the Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence at University of Dallas, and she is the author of multiple books on literature, culture, and Christian faith. And she's just released a new one, the one we are discussing during this episode of the podcast. It's titled, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints from Brazos Press. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I actually just got the hard copy. I got the I got the real book. It just wow. came out. Wow. It's so exciting. <laughs> yeah. To see all of that, you know, kind of come into a physical manifestation uh, mm-hmm. in the book. Let's start by talking about the title. Uh, the name of your book is, as I said, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination and the Company of Literary Saints. And though you do discuss real historical figures uh, from church history in this book, the primary models that you hold up for us are literary characters, so characters and novels, literary saints, as you call them. And for some readers, that may sound strange. What makes a character a literary saint, and why do we need to spend time in their company? Well, I think that all of us are as Christians are trying to pursue holiness. We want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we know from scriptures that following Jesus is a way of living. It's not merely a set of rules or commandments, and we know those things. And yet we are not reading stories that give us narratives that show us what that life looks like. And I, of course, the book of books is the Bible. We have the gospels. We have what Jesus's life looked like. But trying to always transfer or translate, you know, that first century Palestinian Jew context into what does it look like now to follow Jesus as a woman and as a mom in the 21st century? What could my life look like to pursue holiness that way? So novels give us this ability to live vicariously through different characters. And if we choose stories in which a character's whole way of being was to live like Jesus, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, we have Moses, Man of the Mountain. We have characters like Willa Cathers, Archbishop. These people, whether they were real or not, give us that story. They give us a shape to see our lives in and to then cultivate an imagination in which we look at our own lives and see what does it mean to be holy. Yeah, I wonder, are there differences or are there advantages in taking literary saints as a model versus a historical figure? Yes, I think so. Well, for several reasons. So I think one of the things is that the Protestant tradition protests against leftovers from the Catholic Church. And so there's this unnecessary, and not and not all Protestants are like this, but there's this unnecessary hurdle to the things that we should share if they sound like they came before 1500. And so we know that there was 
a lot of, um, you know, the idea of venerating, of canonizing saints is something that we're definitely pushing back against. At the same time, we haven't really replaced the idea that came from the church that's right in church tradition, that you have to have models, that you have to have those figures that you want to imitate and be like. And if we don't have that same tradition, where are we going to find it? Well, I think a lot of times we find it in culture, but most of our culture gives us models, you know, such as superhero films or celebrities, you know, on the basketball court or wherever you find them. And instead we're not volitionally like choosing these certain models. So I think there is a place for some of those stories, but a lot of the ones that we've recognized as saints, you know, St. Teresa or, you know, John Henry Newman or any of these people, we don't recognize the canonization, like the authority of them as saints figures. And so we often don't read their hagiographies. And then secondly, getting into the minds of the characters and getting to see their process. And when you do that through narrative, where you create a different kind of pattern that allows the person to feel as though they're going through that process, it affects you differently than to read a biography or to read um, a hagiography. Does that make sense? Or I can also elaborate on that if you want to. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. You know, you mentioned the fact that I always say to my students that the way that people relate to celebrities is very much like the way that you might think of, you know, medieval saints or something like that. You know, people just want to touch the hem of their garment or take a picture with themselves. And it's like they've captured a little bit of holiness or some kind of quality that they hope is going to be passed to them from this celebrity. And it's interesting to think of the fact that we already do have saints, whether we are Catholic or Protestant or even secular, that Mm -hmm. there are these models that we uh, are trying to be in proximity to or or that we're very interested in looking into their lives and seeing how they live on on an everyday basis. And it's not a question of whether we're going to imitate Mm -hmm. models or saints, but who are our saints or who are our models that we are Mm -hmm. imitating? Yeah, absolutely. I I 100% agree with that. I mean, I'm a Girardian. So so I am constantly looking at the ways that we are trying to figure out who we are by imitating other people and modeling other people. But when we disconnect that, you know, religious observance from the pursuit of holiness, we come into problems because then our lives are, how can I be the best mom? But you're not thinking about how can I be the most holy mom? Like, how can I pursue holiness? How can I be like Jesus as being a mother? Right. I come up with these cultural or worldly ways of being like a mom that are problematic. Right. Cause I, I, I've uplifted whoever this podcast host was <laughs> who is telling me all about being a mom and I can't wait to meet her and be like her. And, but it's, it's disconnected from holiness, which is the only thing that's going to last. That's the eternal goal that we need to find instead of, you know, kind of the temporary way of uplifting that person. Yeah, I was going to ask you about holiness. Uh, You know, that's the other part that even, you know, you use the word the scandal of holiness. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of a time a few months ago when I was with a group of friends, Uh, we were kind of almost telling origin stories of how did you become interested in the things that you love? And I was talking about George MacDonald, and I mentioned something about Lewis's testimony, which you also reference in the Mm -hmm. book, that MacDonald's books are full of holiness. And my friend, who's a writer and an English professor, immediately replied, well, I've never much trusted the word holiness. And I was thinking about that statement the entire time I was reading your book. That was ringing through my mind. And I, you know, I once heard saints described as those whose lives have been insufficiently examined, (laughs) you know, and that that same sort of cynicism that we feel towards the idea of holiness, especially in our fellow humans. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could say more about what you mean by holiness and why don't we trust it? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and what do we lose if we are unable to trust it? I, I think we don't trust it for the right reasons, because it is impossible to be holy by yourself. 
And so we have this idea that if someone is perfected, if we're relying on our own abilities, that's impossible. And so we, I think we rightly distance ourselves. This idea of holiness is unattainable. And yes, you're right. It's unattainable. It can only be gifted, right? And so that in itself, is, it causes a lot of tension and confusion, right? It, it is a scandal. It is something that causes you to stumble over it because so much of your life and so much of the world is telling you how to do things, how, how to achieve something, how to learn something, how to live in a certain way. And it's all about methodology and holiness is not a method. (laughs) So when it comes to creating an imagination in which there's this space for holiness, it's going to be a place of tension. It's going to be a place of challenge, breaking you out of your paradigms of uh, causing some hurt or some struggle. And so if we, if we think of holiness and we know exactly what it means, then we've reduced it below ourselves and it's something we can achieve and check a box. That's not holiness, right? We have a wrong understanding of it. So when your friend responds like, oh, I I don't trust holy. Well, he's probably thinking of people who define it on their own basis. You know, kind of the the Feuerbach idea, um, man didn't invent God, God invented man. Man invented holiness. Hmm. And, And if you put it from that perspective, it is something you should not trust. However, if God actually sets the standard of holiness and gifts people with the ability to be holy, to pursue holiness. And he does, I mean, he says that be holy as I am holy. I mean, it is the actual call that he extends, but the call is an invitation into his presence. It's a participation in what he's doing. It's not something that's just achievable. Mm. Yeah. It connects to, there's a story you tell in the book about, you told a friend that you were writing this book and your Mm -hmm. friend said, it immediately made her feel guilty or something like that. Yeah. And and I think that's a natural response, but it's not your intended response in introducing mm-hmm. us to these literary characters whose lives are characterized by holiness. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tease that out a little bit more? Why shouldn't we feel guilty when we encounter these literary saints? Yeah, absolutely. So I thought of something and maybe it's just because I'm talking to you <laughs> because I know you do a lot on beauty. And I was thinking about this when I was starting to write this book, I could not have foreseen my friend's response. Because what I was doing, especially since it's literary saints, I was attracted by these stories. I was enthralled by them. I was in love with them. I was inspired by them. They uplifted me every single day. So I never thought, ugh, another book on holiness. I don't, you know, I can't ever get there. I don't want another to-do list. And that's what my friend responded with. And I thought, oh, that's not at all what I'm doing. What I'm doing is saying, we are so busy looking down all the time at the things that we're in charge of or responsible for. Uh, and that's our to-do list. Whereas holiness is, if the trash does not get taken out, you can still contemplate, my goodness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, If the things of this world, which do matter, and they're still invested, of course, um, with, with his presence, everything we're doing, we can do the dishes and contemplate God, right? There, it's not that those things are... are abstracted from one another. So I don't want to separate them. Um, But what I was doing is drawing you towards the eternal that's beyond the ordinary, that even even the ordinary that can be an access to that is an access to something beyond it. And so, yeah. So when my friend hesitated against my book, I think she was only thinking about the mundane to-do list and not recognizing that the mundane is transformed 
by the idea of holiness in a way that I think is just lovely. Yeah, I love how you bring beauty into that. And, you know, the idea that the most beautiful thing in the world is a saint. And, you know, maybe mm-hmm. the best argument for Christianity is a saint, uh, you know, a, a beautiful life. Because if there yes. is a saint, then there must be a saint maker. Uh, uh, I find that quite compelling. We also do have an, a tendency to romanticize saints, though. And so mm-hmm. I really appreciated the fact that you talked a lot about imperfections and suffering and difficulties in the lives of saints. And you note that all great saints and heroes share in common suffering. And then you mentioned that Christians often pray for and even choose the way of suffering as a necessary part of the path of holiness. It occurs to me that, you know, we don't, we often don't know what to do with our suffering. We don't know how to process it. And we also don't know how to process our prosperity and know how those two things fit together. Mm-hmm. I just think of my own experience you know, just the way I was raised, the sort of religious context I was raised in, then also being Asian American, I always had the sense that if I'm not suffering, I must not be serving the Lord. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that my life as a middle-aged adult is not without difficulty, but certainly more comfortable than I thought Mm -hmm. it would be when I was a college student dreaming of martyrdom. And so I wonder how you would answer kind of that. We have college students, you know, here uh, that I teach that I sometimes worry that they're romanticizing suffering or they're romanticizing mm-hmm. martyrdom or they're romanticizing mm-hmm. going to the hardest places. And I don't want to discourage that. I don't want to pour cold water on that at all. But should we seek suffering? Uh, what's the relationship of suffering and holiness? Does it require suffering? Does it require a particular kind of suffering? Do we get to choose the suffering? You know, those sorts of things. Um, and then in the discussion question, at the end of the chapter, you have this question, what's the difference between asceticism and masochism? Uh, mm-hmm. And how would you tease that out? Just the relationship between saintliness and suffering and how we mm-hmm. sometimes maybe feel like, oh, I should be suffering more. And yet we should also be challenged, you know, when we're comfortable. Yeah, help help us with that. Yeah. yeah. So the, the short answer is I don't know. <laughs> and, and, I, and I say that because I also really, I want to make sure people hear me say that. There's so many things I don't know. And I wrote the book because I'm not holy, but I'm in love with the um, path. I'm in love with the adventure or the call to be holy. So this book is not going to have all the answers, but it definitely is going to inspire questions that maybe we're not asking. And I think all the questions you just asked are the right ones. Why do we shy away from suffering? Why do we assume um, that the most successful or wealthy life is the better life? than the life that is full of suffering and pain. And if I love what you said a second ago, where you said, if there are saints, there must be a saint maker. I've never heard it phrased that way, but now I want to steal it. And I'm just going to be, I'm going to be on my next podcast and be like, well, Justin Bailey said. I'm <laughs> sure I heard it somewhere else. I just so say, someone once said, yeah. <laughs> that is so good. Um, but it's true. So if there's a saint maker, then the Lord is authoring your life. And if he's authoring your life, he knows whether, uh, the suffering or the wealth is going to be your trial for sanctification, if that makes sense. So for instance, in James, right, opening of James 1, there's that, um, and my, my preacher just preached on this, so it's not like I have James 1 memorized, but I just remember hearing, he was talking about the passage where it says, you know, um, the rich, and then the very next line was about temptation. And he draws them together and says, the temptation is for the rich to become so busy in their own lives that they forget God. And so he ties them together in a way that I'd never heard that before, that rich, that wealth could actually be the temptation. Like those who are wealthy have to really watch out for the temptation to not um, be overcome with the things of this world. And I thought that is so, that is so exactly right. That blessings can be a temptation 
that you can be sanctified because of what blessings make you face. And to constantly have to overcome a life that is wealthy by putting before you always the things that are eternal. That if I'm living in a nice house or I'm driving a nice car, I'm okay if the Lord takes it all away and gives it to whoever he wants to, right? Or if I'm being called to give it all away, I have to be able to let it go at any moment. That may be a greater trial than to someone who's never had it. Um, Their sanctification is going to come in a different way. And so I think we can't romanticize it. We can't necessarily, I wouldn't say chase it, but if you are called into places with suffering or that will cause you suffering, I wouldn't want us to be afraid of that call. I don't think that that's a reason not to make those decisions um, if our eyes are, are geared the wrong, right way. But I, I do. The masochism asceticism question is a really big one. And that's been a question for the saints going back to the Middle Ages. I mean, that's one of the reasons right. Protestant tradition always pushed back against the saints, right? Yeah, it, it makes me think of um, there's a line that you cite from one of one of the novels. Oh, it's about, it's about somebody who who lived while everybody else died. And, mm-hmm. and somebody says to her, your martyrdom is to, to go on without them, yes. you know? And, and I think that, yeah, just recognizing the pa- the fact that the Lord does call different people to different things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, have you read silence too? Yeah. So I, you know, I didn't write on silence cause uh, Karen had already written on silence <laughs> and on reading well, which I thought was really good. And I was like, well, I'm not going to add to what she did. A great job. Uh, but in silence, one of the things I loved is that question about whether it's more effective to evangelize as a living martyr, right? As a living apostate than a dead martyr. And I think that that conflict in that book really makes us wrestle with what our lives are, are being for right? He doesn't, he doesn't get uplifted like his colleague as a dead martyr. And he instead has the pain of being a living apostate, hoping that God is still witnessing through him being a living apostate. Mm. Just, just, you know, again, the scandal, it really mysteries and, and God being so far above us should really scandalize our mind. It should really challenge us. We should not be able to end reading these texts and have all the answers. Right. Right. I mean, I think the best way we grow in holiness is to be scandalized because we we get out of our comfort zone and we hopefully ascend. Right. Move higher. Yeah. Yeah. I say to the students that, you know, the Bible doesn't just have what well, how, how does it go? The Bible doesn't just have uh, answers for all our questions. It also has questions for all our answers, you know, and it's, it's sometimes those those quest open questions yeah. that are sort of like the wounds, you know what I mean? Or like the thing that you just can't kind of. Yeah, you're not supposed to resolve it. You're supposed to live in the tension, the tension of it. And I feel like uh, a lot of the the authors you introduce us to mm-hmm. help us do that. Let me take a little bit of a different direction, or maybe we've talked about this a few times, just sort of distinguishing Protestant cultures or Protestant emphases mm-hmm. uh, from other things. Uh, one of the things that readers will notice about your book is in addition to taking literary figures as your primary models, you also include pieces of visual art in each chapter. Mm-hmm. And you include contemplative devotional exercises at the end of each chapter. And I wonder if you could say more about why those elements were important to the project mm-hmm. that you uh, you had. And then uh, how do those different – you talk about renewing the imagination. And how is the imagination renewed by reading as compared to viewing, as compared to mm-hmm. contemplation? Ooh. I'm asking this mainly because, you know, Protestant cultures – are comfortable with words. Uh, we mm-hmm. like words. We feel comfortable with words, um, but less so with contemplative prayer, mm-hmm. uh, and even less so with visual images. 
And uh, I think we have an impoverished imagination if we neglect some of the gifts of the wider church, which is what I take mm-hmm. you to be doing by including that. But I, yeah, I'd love to hear you riff on that. You know, yeah. how does the imagination get shaped differently um, by these different kinds of engagement? Oh, that's such a fantastic question. So I'm, I'm glad you drew it out. Ecumenism is huge for me. I really lament the fact that our church is divided. And I do. I, I have never gone to a Reformation party because the thought of them make me sad. <laughs> because all I can see is that we've just, we keep dividing the line. And to celebrate that division between all of our different churches is it's just so problematic. There's riches in in all of the tradition. This kind of book um, may not have been welcome at a Catholic publisher because of the devotional aspect, because I really want people to consider these kinds of questions and um, to lead toward discussion and in a sense, protest, right? To, to lead towards a challenging of authority while also I'm representing the tradition that the authority and obedience are so important. And those two things, one comes from Protestantism and one comes from Catholicism, but they really, the church is most united. When you bring those things together, there's so much fruit that can be born. Mm. When I also, when I chose the art, that was kind of, I mean, you've published books, so you know that that can be a huge battle, yeah, the idea of yeah. right? getting to have art. And so I'm so grateful for Kelly Lattimore, who did the art. Kelly Lattimore did Flannery O'Connor. And so one year, my friend and I both bought each other without knowing that we even knew Kelly Lattimore's icons. We both bought each other an icon. And our birthdays are a week apart. We ended up giving each other the same present because these icons, they just became uh, such a source of inspiration to be able to look at a picture. You can't turn it into X plus Y equals Z, right? Which is what Flannery O'Connor says about fiction. Mm -hmm. You can't distill it to an Aesop's fable. You can't take away the mystery. And so pictures are doing a lot of the same things that these narratives are doing in my work is they're really asking you to engage the whole You know, we could go into all sorts of literary theory, like Levinas says that books need to be treated like faces and that you have the whole picture there and that you look into the soul by looking into the face and recognizing the wholeness and not objectifying and taking apart. And I think that that visual representation of that in these these icons, which are Protestant icons, right? Um, This is not the, the pictures of saints who are in here. Some of them aren't even real people <laughs> that are in this work, which I thought was also maybe a little bit bold and daring, but I love that Kelly Lattimore does that, mm-hmm. um, that calls the saints. And I think, just to add one more note on that, I believe that all of us are called to be saints. So when I use that language, I'm imagining that each of us are being looked at by Jesus and he is seeing the saint within us that he's, that he's transforming us into, right? That he's burning away everything so that our saintness is reflected back to God. I believe in that process happening. So when you look at one of these icons and you see Flannery O'Connor or Bonhoeffer as a saint, that's a hopeful picture because it, it's, it's showing you your future. It's, it's showing you the promise that was fulfilled in them that you partake of and will get to partake of. Mm. And, and so that in itself it should be very uplifting. I'm, I'm hoping this book is very uplifting in that way. Yeah, I think there's definitely this sense of mining the wealth of this great, wide and deep tradition, you know, that especially is stretching us beyond maybe the voices or the people that we know of and already listening to, which leads me to my next question um, about 
uh, you introducing us to these sort of lesser known, underappreciated authors. Now, C.S. Lewis is here, of course, but so is Sigrid Unset. I don't know if I pronounced her name right, who I only know of because I follow you on Twitter. Um, and so I have two questions related to sort of your introducing us to these lesser known figures. And the first question is sometimes literary types um, like Karen Swallow Pryor roll their eyes when evangelicals only know about Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, please read something else. You know, there's that kind of sense. And um, I love, as you know, Lewis and Tolkien and MacDonald. And uh, I was very happy to see all the MacDonald references, by the way, uh, in your book. But uh, it's hard for me to push people away from Lewis and Tolkien. What do you think? Do you wish evangelicals read less Lewis or something else besides Lewis? How would you frame that? Or if there's somebody who really likes reading C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, how do you kind of help them not diminish their appreciation for those authors they love, but expand their palette of uh, what they're exposed to. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the reasons I included Lewis, because it's a way of starting where people are. I love C.S. Lewis. So a few years ago, Randy Boyagoda, who's a phenomenal Catholic novelist, if you, he's he's contemporary Catholic novelist. So if you don't know Randy Boyagoda, you should read. He's so funny. You you should just buy his novels. They're, they should just be bestsellers. They're so funny. But he said, I'm sick of Flannery O'Connor. And so it's kind of like what a Protestant might say. I'm sick of C.S. Lewis. But the reason is not necessarily that we're actually sick of them. We love them, but they should not be the only thing that we are reading. I do. I think you could spend a lifetime reading Lewis and McDonald and Tolkien, and they should be a regular part of any good Christian diet, right? As far as a cultural diet. At the same time, you're not going to be scandalized by them the same way you were the first time you read them. Right. And um, as you start memorizing them and knowing by, them by heart, you're going to be less and less scandalized by them because you're expecting the next move. You're expecting what they do. And they're good things to memorize. I quote Lewis probably, I probably quote Lewis, Dostoevsky, and Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy more than I quote anybody else. So they're in my repertoire, so to speak. They've made me who I am. But then some of these other voices challenge that. You know, Walter Wenger and Jr., for example, the book of the Duncow. Wow, that just pulled me outside of my comfort zone when I started thinking about his approach to the earth and his way of seeing things. It's made me look at birds differently and trees differently, which I know sounds probably so strange, but I find myself like, should I should I be talking to a tree? Like should I <laughs> should I like reach out my hand and like talk to my the birds and um we have these two geese that literally they fly over that there's a pond in our backyard and so they fly every day and so I just find myself like talking to them occasionally and kind of showing these acts of charity to the world in a way that I probably wouldn't have had I not read him. So I think some of these less familiar authors ask us to become more than we currently are. Mm -hmm. They really do become these extra steps forward. So the second question related to this love of Lewis uh, is, if you could commend a single author from mm -hmm. your book besides Lewis, who do you think we need to spend the most time with? Or, mm -hmm. or who would you want us to, to meet first? So my immediate impulse is unset. <laughs> but I'm saying that under the assumption that everyone's already read Percy and O'Connor. <laughs> I don't know that they have. And so maybe that's not a great. Uh, so Lewis, choice. Percy, O'Connor, Unset, would that be the. Yeah. The and then Gaines. I, I, I've only read two Gaines novels, but my recent uh, fascination with Gaines, I, I just bought my third um, Gaines novel. So I'm, I'm currently on my way to becoming addicted to Gaines. So it's a new addiction. <laughs> so I can't vouch for everything with gains, but 
a gathering for old men and a lesson before dying were just really influential on the way that I saw the world the last year or two. So let's go with Unset because it's probably the most unfamiliar author. What is it about her writing that that, that we need to read? Yeah. So so my mom, I'm going to give you a story because I don't know that you're going to hear just what I have to say, right? I obviously love literature. I'm a literature teacher. My mom is not. My mom got her college degree when she was 45, maybe. She went back to school after me and my sisters went to school and decided to get a college degree and started teaching uh, high school history. And so every time I tell her about a book, she's like, oh, I got to try that. Like, I don't know how to read these things. And she tried reading Brothers Karamazov and didn't really make it all the way through Brothers Karamazov. And then she started listening to Unset on Audible on her back and forth on her journey to school. And she had to pull over the car because she just started weeping in the middle of reading this book. It's the story of a 14th, Kristen Lovren's daughter is the story of a 14th century woman who is just struggling to follow God versus following herself. And the way that Unset writes about her life, it's, it's kind of a metaphysical realism. Like you feel like you're there, but everything that she's talking about, you're not just seeing the trees or the people or the castles or the churches you're seeing some other layer. You're seeing why that matters to her heart and soul if she makes a certain decision, right? You're seeing the consequences because she's a medievalist. Like she lives in a 14th century surrounded by discussions of angels and demons and God and sin. So everything takes on this spiritual intensity that I think we've lost in the 21st century. Like we don't, we don't think that spiritually intense about life anymore. Uh, so she's able to do it in a realistic way that I think if you wrote, you know, about a businessman going to work and trying to imagine whether his thoughts were leading to him to sin or leading him to to God, it would be like, wow, you're you're a little bit of a goody goody, aren't you? Like, why are you dwelling on those things? And it doesn't have that same kind of effect hearing about a 14th century woman. But they're the same kind of questions, of course, we should be asking ourselves, right? Like weighing our choices. For our listeners, we will have uh, links and titles of all of the authors that Jessica is naming in the show notes. So you can go there and look to see the names. Yeah, the names of the people that have been mentioned during this podcast. Let me ask two more questions. So the first one is this. Um, You write about writers. And I was a little bit worried when I picked up your book just because some of the literary saints were new to me. And on the one hand, I didn't want to be lost. And also, I didn't want to spoil the experience of reading the books. I was pleased to find uh, that each chapter made me want to read more from the authors. And I wonder if you could say more about how you approach your craft as a writer who writes about other writers, who specializes, perhaps, in introducing us to the great books and the great authors of the great tradition. Uh, I know on the one hand, you want to communicate the holiness you found in the books, but on the other hand, you want readers to go to the books for themselves. And I've just dabbled a little bit. You know, I've written a little bit about McDonald and Robinson, and I worry, oh, I'm just giving people notes to the poem. I want them to read the poem. And so how do you navigate as you sit down to write the tension of telling enough of the story, giving enough details, Mm -hmm. trying to enrich the experience of reading while not falling into the heresy of paraphrase um, Mm -hmm. or spoiling the experience of reading the primary text? That's a good question. You know, as a, as an academic, when I, which is, it's always death to a book to even tell anybody you're an academic, but um, (laughs) as an academic, I learned a certain way of writing about literature that didn't fit, I think my personality as well. And so I've written lots of academic books in which I was less comfortable with, with the task of writing on them, right? There's certain ways you have to write. Can you say more about that? What what would be? Or, yeah. Just the idea of having to take the work apart, 
you're almost talking on top of it in a way that I wasn't comfortable, okay. right? You're, you're standing above it and you're pulling out what you need from it and what you're using for your point. Uh, a lot of times you find the same things quoted over and over again. You know, I, I find it very frustrating to go to some academic conferences, like on one author. Like if I just go to a Flannery O'Connor conference, if you stay more than one session, you will hear all of the same quotes <laughs> like within like a weekend. Right. So it was that way in which you just, I felt like you lost the context. You lost the power of the words. You, you lost the reason that people love reading. And as someone who, when I, I was a little kid loved reading so much, I never wanted to do that. I never wanted to make the work work, you know, impotent in my life. I wanted it to still be a powerful thing for me when I'm teaching. I don't fall into that pitfall. Like I, it just doesn't happen because you're with another person and you're imagining telling them the story and wanting them to love it as much as you do. Or, you know, if you were in a bookstore and trying to get someone to buy a book next to you and explaining why it is you love it. So when I'm writing, I imagine my students in front of me, not that I'm at an academic conference, but instead where here are my students or here's my book club right? Or here is my Sunday school class. And I tried to imagine those faces. What would I say? Right. And I, and I think that that changes the tenor and the tone of how I write about, about the books. Yeah. So academic writing can be really clinical and almost detached as a necessity. And it seems like it almost is an exercise in spiritual writing, spiritual reading um, as an act of love, you know, Mm -hmm. for, for the people that you are writing for. I really appreciate that. My last question is maybe in closing, uh, probably the part that I found most moving in the book is a part where you reflect on the diary of a country priest. Mm -hmm. And after sharing a passage from that book, you write, to live in Jesus Christ is to experience the miracle of giving what we do not have. I wonder if you could say more about what that means and what is the gift of empty hands? Yeah. That's such a meaningful image to me. I mean, I I reflect on it in the book, just that moment where I was sitting there reading that passage. And I just, I wanted just to cry out loud on a plane because I just thought that's, that's it. That is what life is. I think it, it does summarize what holiness is in an image, right? Giving what it is that we ourselves do not have. We've all had those moments where you're in conversation with someone and maybe they're going through a hard time. Maybe they're struggling with something. And you, out of nowhere, say the exact right thing at the right time. And you have no idea how you just did that. Like you yourself, maybe not, you wouldn't have been comforted by the words you just said, or you would have never thought of them. You don't know where they came from. Like that kind of overwhelming sense that that you've been gifted something in those moments. And I think life should be a collection of those moments, right? The more that we are in tune, that we are contemplating, that we're filling our heads with these stories, uh, with the right music, with the right sermons, with the right scripture, just the more that we're living in these words that are good and beautiful and true, we will just become the vessels for that, those good and beautiful, true things to come forward and to be given to others. And I, I think that's what the book is trying to show us, that we should be those with empty hands, ready to give miracles as God wants to give them. The book is The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. Our guest has been Jessica Hooten-Wilson. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. 
Absolutely, Justin. Any, anytime.